are so grateful that when we come together, we do not gather around some ideas some of us have, some feelings, some dreams. We gather around your sure and certain word, Lord. And when we look at your word, it is you speaking to us. And that's why it matters. That's why it's so significant. You are revealing your very mind to us, the God of the universe. Please help us realize that as we come to your word now. It is you speaking to us. Please humble us. Prepare us to submit to the commands and demands of your word, Lord. Above all, Lord, we want to see your son, your beautiful and precious son in your word. Please help us do that, and in doing that, to become like him, to follow him in word and deed. Please help us now. In his, son, in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And um, if you'd please open up your Bible once again to Titus chapter 1. As you might remember, um, when I'm up here, we've been going through Titus. And the last two times, we were dealing with the qualifications for elders that Titus gives in verses 5 to 9. Um, that's those qualifications really central to the book of Titus. Paul is writing to Titus in this letter to instruct him and prepare him to establish local churches on the island of Crete. And the way he was going to establish these local churches was by uh, anointing, preparing, setting up qualified elders to lead these churches. And so started off right away saying this is what these elders ought to be like. And the last verse, uh, verse 9, it said the final quality of these elders of these local churches is that they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, and our verses today, verses 10 to 16, it's a, a continuation uh, of that last line. That line that the elder has to be able, qualified, to rebuke people who resist and contradict true sound doctrine. Because of that, then Paul describes who are these false teachers? Who are these people that need to be contradicted? Who are these people, with the title of today's sermon, the rod of rebuke? Who are the people that must be rebuked by qualified, authoritative leaders in the local church? We'll see that the false teachers have to be rebuked, but others have to be rebuked as well. Let's go ahead and read then at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Christians are engaged in a war, a war of ideas, a war of words. The enemy... Satan, the world, 
attacks us, attacks the faithful church through false words by false teachers. And as long as Satan and the world, unbelievers, are in that business of attacking Christ's precious church with false words and false ideas, there needs to be godly Christians, leaders who will represent Christ and refute those false teachers, who will, in place of lies and distortions, will give the truth, will give the truth from God's word. There is a war, and so we need leaders. We need protectors. We need people who are going to engage in this war of words and ideas. Some people, they often say, you know, uh, Christian ministry, we need, to, we need to stop having it be so polemical. Uh, don't be so argumentative. Instead, we should focus on peace and what we have in common with everybody else. And uh, that sounds great to me. Who wouldn't want to be engaged in peace? Talk about all the nice things we have in common. But we can't do that as long as there are liars, deceivers, predators who are trying to deceive people and take advantage of them. While there are wolves going around, we can't just say, oh, we're we're just going to pretend that it's peacetime. We're going to pretend everyone's on the same page. We can't be naive. There are people in this world who want to exploit, control, even if possible, lead astray God's people. And as long as there are these people, we not only need pastors who are teaching the truth, we need church government. We need structures. We need uh, ecclesiastical authority. We need structures that are going to stop these vicious men from coming into God's church and taking his people. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verse 10. There are people who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and they must be silenced. Uh, This principle of the need to have shepherds who will protect God's sheep from vicious predators uh, was demonstrated very sadly in the 1970s during the Jesus People Movement with this cult by the name of the Children of God. They were led by a very evil, terrible person named David Berg. And uh, if you guys uh, don't know about the Jesus People Movement, it it was really a, a great thing that happened in the early 70s. Um, that was, of course, the gener- and larger society. It was the counterculture, the hippie movement. And amongst that uh, generation of young, discontent, rebellious young people, uh, some of them realized that uh, Christianity is the most countercultural thing there is. And a lot of young people, I'm sure people you know, came to faith in Christ for the first time in this countercultural movement known as the Jesus people. And again, I, it was really, as a whole, a, a great movement, a great thing. Um, Many people were truly converted. But as a whole, it it would be fair to describe the movement as innocent or a little more harshly childish. But, But that's both for good and ill. It was innocent and childish for good and that the movement kind of rejected a lot of the superficial facade that had been commonplace and indeed some people necessitated in the church at the time. And it was good. They, they had a childlike faith that said, hey, let's, let's get back past all the formalities. Uh, Christianity, it's not really about you know, what your hair looks like or what clothes you're wearing or even the songs that you sing. Let's get back to the New Testament. Let's see how they did church in the book of Acts, and let's try and replicate that. And, and that, that was a great thing. They got rid of a lot of you know, extra superficial facade by that childlike devotion to God's word. On the negative side, that innocence, that 
childishness. Uh, it also demonstrated itself as naivete. Um, they kind of came across anything that they didn't understand right away, they didn't see right away in Scripture, obviously, and they said, ah, we don't need to do with that. That meant they didn't really have a care for theological education. They got rid of seminaries, they got rid of normal ordination. The people who ended up leading these Christian communes, it was, it was just one of the people who had just become a Christian recently like everybody else, and it was probably the person who was the most charismatic, who uh, was a happy guy and a nice person, and that person became the leader. It's all well and good. You know, a life like that, communal living, everyone's happy, very democratic, no leaders, no training, that would work great in a world in which there's no evil people, right? In which there are no wolves. But there are, and there were. And that's what this guy David Berg did. He started a cult called the Children of God, which on the surface seemed very different to a lot of the other Jesus people movements. Um, they, though, defined themselves by being even more committed to the Bible, Christianity, than the other groups. They defined themselves as being the most earnest, so earnest that the members of the group had to basically cut off all connections to people they knew before they were Christians and then they, were, uh, they evangelized all the time. They had really strict devotion to moral purity. In a moment, you'll see that wasn't entirely true. And they gained this reputation of being earnest followers of Christ who took Christianity uh, seriously to the utmost. And it was, so, uh, it was that passion, that charisma, that actually influenced a bunch of the other groups who were more orthodox to follow this one group. They realized that they were pretty immature, and they saw these people who were sold out, who were so committed to following Christ and evangelism, that established leaders of these other groups, they just said like, hey, we should just fold in and follow the children of God. We should just follow David Berg. These people know where it's at. In the end, though, David Berg, he would claim to be a prophet from God. He would teach damning heresy, saying that Christians should engage in all kinds of uh, very immoral things, and he would exploit and abuse many, many women and children. It was awful. And it, at one moment, in about 73, it hit, the big, it hit the news. Everybody before that had thought, hey, the Jesus people movement, this is wonderful. Look at this. All these young people coming to Christ. All these people coming to Christ with an innocent and naive faith. And they're not doing with old school things like uh, church structure and church government and certain clothing and uh, certain hairstyles. Isn't this wonderful? And then they saw the children of God. They saw what kind of perverted movement had risen up among that. And what everybody realized is we were a bit naive, weren't we? To think that we could just bring all these young people into the church and that we didn't need to train them. We didn't need to put godly, mature leaders in their lives who could protect them and help them discern. Instead, we had basically children leading other children. And they were captured and seduced by an evil man. One simple idea from today's text is this. Don't trust religious leaders. Don't trust Christian leaders simply because they say they're Christian and they're a part of a church and they talk from the Bible and they have a title of reverend or whatever. Of course, of course, uh, you know, many Christian leaders are uh, trustworthy and deserving of you following them, listening to them. Of course, that's the case. But many are not. Don't follow someone, listen to them at face value just because they've got a TV show, a radio show, a lot of people listen to them. That's not enough. Don't be naive. There are many, many evil people out there who want to control you, take your money, 
seduce people. And they're not stupid. They don't have, you know, it's not like uh, the, that myth about undercover cops that they have to say if they ask you. That's not like, uh, you know, false teachers either, that if you ask them, they're going to tell you that they don't actually believe the truth. No, they're going to disguise themselves. They're going to tell you that they're orthodox. They're going to tell you they believe the Bible. They're going to tell you that they believe just like you. They just also have this special knowledge that is especially important. Well, that leads us to point number one. That's this, the sins of false teachers. The sins of false teachers. Who are these false teachers that are going to threaten Christ's church, that are going to leave us, lead us astray? Who are these false teachers that elders need to combat with true and sound doctrine? Of course, if you want to figure out who these false teachers are, I'd recommend look at verses 5 to 9. Look at the, the qualities of the godly elders. And uh, yeah, quite easily, the people you shouldn't follow are the people who don't do those things. But what I'd also like to do is look at a few of the adjectives that Paul uses in verses 10 to 16 to describe the false teachers and just make a couple more conclusions about who false teachers are in general. Uh, The first and most important of these characteristics of a false teacher of their sins is what Paul says right away, verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate. That's the, the biggest, most general and indeed, indeed most piercing characteristic of false teachers. They are insubordinate. They don't submit to God's authority. In the Old Testament, the false teachers, they didn't submit to God's given authority through the prophets. In the New Testament, they didn't submit to God's given authority through the apostles. And today, false teachers don't submit to God's given authority in Scripture, which, which was written by those same prophets and apostles. To put it a different way, A Christian teacher's trustworthiness is defined by his faithfulness to Scripture. That is where God speaks. That is where God communicates what he authoritatively knows as the truth. And so, quite simply, if a religious teacher teaches the Bible, listen to them. And if they don't, don't listen to them. And of course, you know, your standard can't simply be, well, did they mention a Bible verse? No. Are they, is the source of their message, of their sermon, Is it from Scripture? It's not just a a binary thing. Well, they mentioned a verse, so everything else they're saying must be from Scripture. No. Pay attention. See, okay, this is his main point. This is his main conclusion. This is his main directive. Is that from Scripture? Is it derived from somewhere else? False teachers demonstrate their falseness by not submitting to God's authority in Scripture. I think we can also say that a false teacher's insubordination is expressed in their lack of submission to the local church, which, as we've seen in Titus, is God's own institution. God told Paul to tell Titus to go and set up churches on the island of Crete. And the elders, the true teachers, what are they? They are closely, they are necessarily connected to the life of the local church. In the same way you can assess a a given teacher's submissiveness, humility to God's authority by looking to see, is he under, is he accountable to the local church? It's very dangerous for any teacher to be free from accountability to fellow elders, to the the people of their church, to pastors, indeed, even of other churches who can come and tell them when they say something false. Of course, there are many false teachers who have churches, who have ministries, 
But you need to look closer. Look and see, does, does this teacher, just because he's a part of this church, just because he has this ministry, does he have real accountability? Is he actually a fellow elder? Or is it him and then everyone else is below him, his uh, inferior? Plenty of people, they sit at the top of their organization and they have no real accountability because everyone in the organization recognizes they're the most skilled they're the most powerful. They're the ones who bring in all the money through fundraising. So we're never going to question anything he says or does. And in fact, if, even if he sinned and we found out about it, we're going to try and hide it because we realize that's how we have our influences, through that guy's personality. If you see an institution is set up like that, if there is no true accountability for the Christian teacher, beware. Beware. The principle of false teachers not... Submitting to God's authority, it's seen there in Paul saying directly that they're insubordinate. But it's also seen in, in verse 14. Look down there. Paul says that these people, these false teachers, what do they do? They devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. These false teachers, who Paul says are of the circumcision party, by the way, that, that's not the, the heresy that Paul was addressing in Galatians necessarily. It just basically means that they were probably Jewish Christians. And what they were doing is their teaching was not, uh, it was not reliant on Scripture. Instead, it was mostly consisting of a bunch of man-made rules, principles, under the guise, hey, keep these rules, keep this plan, this game plan I've made, and you're going to have a healthy, successful life. You're going to do well in business. Your family's going to be happy. You're not going to do anything really abominable. You're going to please God. And the Jewish legends, the way that factored in is they'd have some kind of rule. You know, maybe it's that uh, you can't lift something that's this heavy or you can't eat this type of food. And someone would come along and say, well, where did we get that rule? How, how do you know that we can't do that? And the basis would be some kind of Jewish legend, some Jewish myth. It would be something like, well, the rabbis tell us that the rabbis tell us that someone told us that long ago Abraham was one time on a journey and God told him to do this and that. And so that's why we do the same thing today. Their authority was not from Scripture. It was from these legends, which they had privy access to and other people didn't. Now, today, I don't think there's a lot of people who base their teaching on, uh, you know, old Jewish myths. What do they do, though? They don't rely on Scripture, and that instead they say, uh, you need to do this thing, you need to keep this command, you need to follow this game plan for life. How do you know? Um, well, maybe I, I thought of it. I figured out that this is the best way to live, and then I see the results and people I know, and so you can trust me, this is, this is the rule you have to keep. And it's so sound, I know it so surely, that to not keep it is to not listen to God, because indeed, I, also, I'm God's spokesperson. Maybe they'll even go a step further and they'll say, uh, you know, God told me, he affirmed to me that this principle, this way of living life, this was true. Or I, I had a dream, I had a vision, whatever. The point in all of this is these false teachers, what do they do? They rely on any kind of authority other than scripture. And in the process, well, people are fascinated, they're drawn along. Why? Because Scripture can be kind of boring. Scripture's everywhere. Everyone can access Scripture. People have been trying to follow Scripture for years, and it's pretty hard. So if someone can come along and have a new idea that if you just follow this, you have this shortcut to righteousness, everything's going to go great, well, that sounds wonderful. Why do the old hard way when I can do the new easy way? Who wouldn't sign up for that? 
So that's the first characteristic of false teachers. They don't submit to God's authority either in Scripture or in the local church. A second is that they love money. That's what Paul says. He says the reason these false teachers came along, that they were teaching, it was for shameful gain. That's the same word that Paul uses back in verse 7. He says that an elder should not be uh, greedy for gain. It's the exact same phrase that he says in verse 11. These false teachers, on the other hand, they are motivated by shameful gain when they teach what they ought not to teach. Um, that's, that's what defines so many false teachers. They love money. And while, of course, pastors, they, they ought to be paid. I, I say that with a very personal interest. I want to be paid. Uh, I want to live my life. I want to be able to live so that I can minister, I can serve. And just like other people, you know, pastors can use their money on things they enjoy. That's just fine. But given how often Scripture warns us about leaders loving money and being greedy, it is worthwhile to consider the lifestyle of the pastor you listen to. This should be abundantly clear with the prosperity gospel preachers who fly, you know, billion-dollar jets. Is that not clearly the opposite of how Jesus and Paul lived? But it's, it's worth asking with other pastors and teachers and preachers as well. It's worthwhile to look. What kind of clothes do they wear? What kind of cars do they drive? What kind of houses do they live in? So often, false teachers are motivated by a desire for money and power, and so if a given person has a lot of money and has a lot of power, you should ask yourself, is that the reason they minister? Are they in it? Are they saying the things they say because they know that's how they're going to maintain their wealthy lifestyle? Or it, it, it could be good, it could be pure, it could be coincidental. There are many faithful pastors who live an upper-middle-class lifestyle. That, that's just fine. But again, we should be warned. We should be cautious. Uh, when, they're, when a preacher lives an exuberantly wealthy lifestyle, it's pause for concern. A final characteristic that we can kind of deduce here from these verses is that false teachers, they damage families. Three times in Titus, Paul mentions the home in reference to the church. Uh, we saw it a uh, couple months ago in chapter 1, verse 6, that an elder's leadership is demonstrated by obedient children. And we'll see uh, next week in chapter 2, verse 4, that a faithful young woman loves her family and serves them. And here it says in verse 11 that these false teachers, they upset whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul mentions this, first of all, as a cause for urgency. Though what the false teacher might be saying is abstract and theoretical, it's having real consequences. It's destroying families. Pastors cannot just say, ah, it's okay, it's just some, some strange ideas. No, it has real-world consequences, real devastation in people's lives. Just as the serpent's lie dissolved the harmony between Adam and Eve, and then eventually caused Cain to slay his brother, so now the deception of false teachers destroys the homes of those who listen to the false teachers. Of course, we know what Jesus said in Matthew 14, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Yeah, the gospel does bring division in families. It happens. When there's an unbelieving family and a person becomes a Christian, it often happens that the non-Christians disown the Christian. That happens. But on the other hand, when someone becomes a Christian, when they then marry another Christian, 
when they raise children according to God's rules, for the most part, in general, those families are going to be wholesome and upright. And in contrast, you can look at the lives of the people who follow the false teachers. Look and see the devastation in their families. See the daughters who were told to disown their families and never speak to them again. See the sons who erupt into debauchery and insubordination and rejection of a legalistic and loveless home. See the fathers who mercilessly domineer their families because they have been taught a perversion of male leadership. See the wives who waste their families' resources supporting pastors who are little more than con men. So those are the sins of the false teachers. First of all, they are insubordinate. They don't submit to God's authority. Second, they love money. They're greedy for shameful gain. Third, the lives of their followers, their family lives specifically, are destroyed as they follow these unbiblical and destructive principles. And so Titus says, these false teachers, these people who exhibit these characteristics, they must be rebuked, corrected by faithful elders. But those aren't the only people who need to be rebuked. Those aren't the only people who need to be corrected. Uh, point number two is this, the audience of false teachers, the audience of false teachers. The false teachers must be corrected, they must be rebuked, but it takes two to tango. The people who follow these false teachers, who listen to them, who support them, who propagate their lies, they also need to be rebuked. And that's what we'll see in verses 12 to 14. And uh, these verses 12 to 14, well, they're a bit fun for a contrarian like myself because they're kind of transgressive. Uh, they, they, Paul says two things that are completely taboo and intolerable in today's society, ethnic stereotyping and victim blaming. Um, of course, there are sinful ways to do that. Don't take this as justification to go be a, a bigoted, prejudiced jerk. Uh, but that's what Paul does. He starts off with the victim blaming. He says, yeah, false teachers, they're responsible for the lies and evil and deception. But listen, the people who follow those lies and deception, they also bear responsibility. Why? It's, it's the followers' vices. It's their sins. It's their temptations that empower and give an opportunity for the false teachers to come along and entice those people to speak lies that satisfy their sinful and shameful desires. If a person only cares about pleasing Christ, glorifying him, being like him, if that person accepts God's rule and authority in the world and trusts God in the midst of suffering, how's that person going to be enticed by a false teacher? They're not. That person's interested in being like Christ and following Christ. They don't need to hear about being rich. They don't even need to hear about being saved from suffering. They know that suffering's going to come and God's going to use it for their good. No, people who follow false teachers are people who are sinners, who have flaws who have desires that are preyed upon by the false teachers. So you, you can look at you can look at cults. Look at yeah, of course. Shame on the cult leaders. Shame on those despicable people who exploit and control those people for their own greed and lust. They will be damned for that. But also the people who follow that teaching, there's an appropriate amount of shame that's appropriate. Each of us needs to take responsibility, therefore, that we're not seduced, we're not beguiled by false teachers. Specifically, what can you do? What can you do to stop yourself 
from being seduced by a liar, a deceiver? Well, one, know what Scripture teaches. Study theology. Know what the truth is. If you know that, when someone comes around with lies, you're going to know it's a lie. Second, not everyone can have an exhaustive or even incredibly deep knowledge of Scripture and theology. That's okay. But if you don't, then you need all the more, indeed all of us need, faithful pastors and teachers who can help us. Who can help us know that this is evil, this is false, that's a lie. I know it sounds pretty good, I know he uses that verse, but that's not actually what that verse means in context. Let me explain it to you. Rely on someone like that to protect yourself from being exploited by a sinful people. And then finally, you need to grow in holiness. That The people who follow these false teachers, they're people who want to escape suffering. There are people who, want, who basically have an idol of prosperity. They might have an idol of having a perfect family. We need to grow in holiness. We need to let go of those things. We need to conform ourselves to what God says the Christian life is going to be like. We do that, we will be protected from sinning by following false teachers. And what Paul is saying in verses 12 to 14 is that the Cretan people they were prone to specific sins, namely lying, uh, evil beasts, that meant kind of having uh, base desires, animalistic desires, and then lazy gluttons. They followed their stomach. And that takes us from the, the victim blaming to the ethnic stereotyping. Yet the reason that Paul gives these, the stereotype of the Cretans, why it, it's not to be a jerk, it's not to say, uh, you know, don't minister to these people, uh, beware of these people, leave them alone, or treat them as lower citizens. No, the reason that Paul makes this stereotype about the Cretans is so that Titus and the elders can serve the Cretans. It's to love them. The way you love somebody is not by being ignorant and pretending they're perfect and ignoring anything you see about them. You love someone with knowledge, with wisdom. And if it's clear or it's likely that someone's going to struggle with something, well, then keep that in mind. Use that wisdom, use that knowledge, use that inference to serve them. Of course, stereotypes become you know, really wrong when someone basically becomes so proud that they assume that every single individual is going to be a certain way. You can, you can make a, an inferred guess that someone might struggle with the sin, and if they don't, that's okay, let it go. Again, Paul's here, though, is that Paul's point as a whole is that as Titus and the elders minister to the Cretans, they need to be aware of their vices. They need to be aware that they have a specific reputation. And it was even their own uh, prophet, the greatest Cretan in history, basically, this guy named Epimenides, or the greatest prophet among them, at least. He himself said that about the Cretan people. They were always liars. They were, they were evil beasts. They were lazy gluttons. And everyone knew that. Uh, Cicero said the Cretans... They're the only people in the whole world who think that highway robbery is an honorable profession. Everyone knew what the Cretans were like. And Paul says, don't ignore that. Don't pretend that they're specific people. Recognize what their flaws are and then meet those flaws. Help them grow away from those flaws. And of course, this is, again, very counter to the way our world thinks. Our society says that... Um, that it's impossible, it could never happen really, that someone might have similar qualities to those who are similar to them, and to think that, that's anathema, that's a, great, a source of great injustice. We need to be aware, we need to not be naive. People are products of their environments. Even you, even you as an individual. Don't be so proud to presume 
that you're so free-spirited, so independent, so autonomous, that you're never going to be influenced by the culture you grew up in. Of course you will be. And that's, that's every single person and every single culture, because every culture has their strengths and their weaknesses, and they're actually usually quite aligned. And whatever culture you grew up in, it's quite likely that you're going to demonstrate some of the strengths and weaknesses of your culture. Uh, as an example, when I was in college, my final semester I, I spent in Israel. And uh, Israel, you know, quite different culture than uh, that in America. And the thing that struck me the most is how community-oriented the people in Israel were. And this was great in a lot of ways. Everybody lived on a, a kibbutz, which is just a community. And the community, it was all people who had the same religion or the same worldview. So you had, if you're a secular Jew, you lived in a community of just secular Jews. If you were an Orthodox Jew, you lived in a community, apartments of just Orthodox Jews. Hasidic Jews the same, Arabs the same. There's one community for Messianic Jews. And they all lived together. And you can imagine, that's great in a lot of ways. Imagine if we all lived in the same apartment building. It'd be very easy to be so involved in one another's life. We'd be like family can help each other raise our kids, we can keep watch over them, and you could see that in Israel. The people that live there in that Christian community, indeed all the communities, they're incredibly close-knit, that's great. On the other hand, that incredibly tight communities that everyone in Israel was involved in, that meant that anybody who wasn't a part of their community, well, they're irrelevant. They're basically useless. And then as a foreigner who's not a part of any of the groups, I am an outsider ostracized all around. That's how it is in Israel. Strengths and weaknesses. It's the opposite kind of here in America. Here, there's not a lot of close communities. And so, on one hand, that means that people aren't all that close. But on the other hand, if someone's a stranger, if someone's a foreigner, I think we do a pretty good job of welcoming them. Basically, we're all strangers. We're all foreigners. But let's go back to Israel for a second. It would be proud. It would be kind of ignorant for a Christian there to say, yeah, that characterization of uh, people in Israel, though, how dare you think that's true about us? Our church, we do it perfectly. We're perfectly hospitable. We would never do that like the larger culture does it. That'd be foolish. Be foolish. The humble thing would be to say, yeah, you're right. That is something that people here in Israel do, and I live my whole life here. I see how I'm prone to do the same thing. The humble thing would be to examine their church and see, hey, do we do the same thing? Are we so community-oriented that we're not welcoming to people who are outsiders? Now, I, I purposely talked about uh, Israel, the Jews in Israel who are far away because I don't have the chutzpah to talk about um, vices of the people of West Oahu. Um, and, and furthermore, as, as Pastor John often tells me, Oahu is a stew pot, not a mixing pot. So it's not that there's just one culture here that's all been assimilated together. Instead, whatever culture you come into Hawaii on Oahu you, stays the same. You remain isolated in your particular culture. So all of us here, being from many different backgrounds, we all represent probably a number of different cultures with their accompanying strengths and weaknesses. And what I say to you is consider the culture you come from. Think about it. What are the strengths and weaknesses of the setting you grew up in? And then take it a step further and ask, well, are those true of me? Is that reflected in my own life? It's a quite decent chance it is. And, and you could look at that culture, you could look at it very broadly. You could just look at it as a, a 21st century Westerner. What are going to be my priorities, my assumptions? How might those be different than what Scripture says? 
You could make it more specific. For, for me, I could ask myself, what are, the, what are the vices, the propensities, the strengths and weaknesses of someone who grew up in Orange County, California? Um, particularly, the stereotype of people from Orange County is that we are vain, materialistic, and always trying to keep up with the Joneses. That testimony is true. And I think it would be proud and arrogant for me to not ask myself, well, Spencer, are, are you vain and materialistic like that? How could I grow up in a culture where everyone at my school, everyone around me is always trying to get more money and have nicer stuff than people around them and think that I'm going to remain unaffected? That's quite unlikely. So think about yourself. Think about your own spe- specific culture. And because this is a, we, we can become so, find our identity in our culture. And we can resign ourselves. We can say, well, all I'm ever going to be is the best version of whatever, you know, for myself. All I can ever be is the best Southern Californian I can be, and I'm going to accept that with the requisite strengths and weaknesses. But don't make that your standard. Don't make your standard to be the best person from west of Oahu you can be. Transcend your specific culture. Become like the God-man from Galilee. He is the one standard of a true and righteous man. That's going to mean not just putting off the vices that your culture thinks are vices, but all the others, all the other things that are accepted, that are so hard to perceive. Strive hard, look inside yourself, see what are the sins that are hidden because they're so prevalent among everybody. That's what Paul told Titus to do in the churches in Crete. Realize what the people's vices are, make them aware of them, and then it says rebuke them sharply. That's a very strong word. It's not, it's not gently correct, it's, it's not admonish. Rebuke them sharply. Basically, they're, they're probably so stubborn, so obstinate, They were drawn in so much by the false teachers speaking to their sensual desires that it was going to take more than just, uh, hey, are you sure you want to be listening to that guy? It was going to take a sharp rebuke. Stop listening to that false teacher. He is going to damn your soul if you keep following him. He is destroying your life. Stop it. And, And note, what's the practical application? Note, there might come a time in your life We are all prone to be seduced by false teachers. We might come across a false teacher who speaks directly to a vice we have, and we are drawn along and drawn in so much that we won't listen to anybody. And be prepared that should that time come, you will be greatly blessed if there's an elder in your life who will have the love and courage to rebuke you sharply and tell you to quit it. Be prepared that that might be exactly what you need. Don't respond, how dare he ever speak to me so harshly, so sharply. It might be what you need. And all we can do now is try and prepare ourselves that should that time come, should we ever be in need of a sharp sharp rebuke, we would be able to respond rightly and humbly. As I said before, the false teachers, they were characterized by teaching Jewish legends and legalistic rules. And so, in verse 14, Paul says that, For the people to be sound in faith, to be healthy in their belief and their doctrine, they had to turn away from these Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So, verses 10 to 11, Paul spoke of rebuking the false teachers. Verses 12 to 14, he spoke about rebuking the audience of the false teachers. And now, verses 15 and 16, finally, he rebukes the specific error of the false teachers. He says this, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. 
They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Most simply, the false teachers there and Crete, they were legalists. More specifically, they were Jewish legalists. And they exchanged a inner true goodness for a superficial and artificial goodness. Uh, as you might remember, this error of fake goodness and the opposing truth of a true goodness founded in the heart, it's at the very heart of this letter. I talked about that in my intro to the book of Crete. The Christians on the island of Crete, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in them, are, were able to be truly good. Us too. If you have been washed, sanctified, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you can be a truly good person. You can actually glorify the Lord. You will, of course, still have your sins, but you can do truly good things, and you should dedicate yourselves to doing those good things. What will always happen, though, is for false teachers and false Christians who don't have the Holy Spirit, they're going to dedicate themselves to superficial and artificial good works. They can't truly be good. They can't have a new heart. So they're going to make up these rules that are easy that anyone could keep, but are going to give the impression to other people that they're good people, that will give them themselves assurance that they're not going to be judged for their sins. Realizing their moral nakedness, they would sew together facades of superficial law-keeping that would give the appearance of goodness. They were the ones, in the words of our Lord, who would spend so much time cleaning and washing and making the outside of the tomb pristine, all the while ignoring the rotting of human flesh within the walls. But it's all they could get. And it made them look good, and it gave them followers, so they did what they could. They made it a source of pride. And specifically, what the people in Crete were doing, it seems, was insisting on uh, Levitical rules about clean foods. You can eat this, you can eat, not eat that, or it might even be you need to bathe like this or dress like that, and that's what's going to make you please God. Not an insistence on, you know, humility and love and justice. No, just uh, wear the right clothes and bathe frequently and eat this food and you're good. Uh, Paul's description of the false teachers here in 10 to 16, it's very different, or it's very similar to two other passages in Scripture. Uh, you can write them down. I'll, I'll just read from them. The first is 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. There, Paul, uh, addressing a similar situation, but Timothy was in Ephesus, Paul said this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now let me read from Luke eleven thirty-seven to 42. It says there, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It actually seems that Paul derives his phrase to the pure, all things are pure, 
from Jesus' words in verse 41, that if you give alms from within, then everything is clean to you. Indeed, the word that's translated in Luke is clean, and then translated here in Titus as pure, it's the same word. And that helps us understand what is that phrase, to the pure all things are pure means. Basically, it means to the inwardly clean, everything is ceremonially clean. If you address the heart, if you are washed and regenerated by the Spirit inwardly, then you don't need to worry about clean and unclean foods anymore. Everything is now clean to you. This demonstrates a, a, a larger principle. Um, what matters is who you are inside. Put it a different way. In the Christian life, in Christian ethics, it matters more who you are than what you do. It matters more who you are than what you do. And I know there's kind of some shock value to that, so let me, let me explain. If you become the right person, if inwardly you are good and godly, you become like Christ, you value the things that he values, you have his words stored up in your heart, then you are going to do good and godly things. It's going to naturally flow from you. This is what uh, Paul pictures in Galatians, right? What does is, what is he say in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit? Is it the, the rules of the Spirit? No, it's the fruit. It's that which naturally arises from someone who has the Holy Spirit inside of them. That person from them is going to come naturally. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You don't do those things. You don't exhibit those qualities by getting a law about those. No, it's by being renewed inwardly, by becoming pure and clean inwardly, then this fruit is exhibited. That does not mean, of course, that a godly person can then just do whatever they want. Well, I'm pure inside, so everything's pure to me now. No, if you do things that are objectively sinful and impure, then all you've done is shown that you're actually not good and pure inwardly. God's precepts are always true and righteous, and they mean what they mean. You can't just change what, uh, what God commanded because you say you're a good person and you know better. No, if you don't follow God's word, then you just show you're unrighteous. He's the standard of what it means to be good. In all of God's commands, they're loved by those who love the Lord and are like them. But, but the point that I want to get at is that in your life, you need to focus on personal transformation rather than outward rules. If you continue to have a sin that you struggle with, there, there's probably a place for implementing new practices in your life, but, but don't make that your goal. Don't just think, oh, I just need to do this external thing differently. I need to hear about this strategy, and then I'm going to be new. I'm going to be the good person I know I am inside. What you need to do is when you sin, realize, yeah, that, that says something bad about me, doesn't it? That says that I am that way. There's something wrong with me inwardly. I need to... I need to change my heart somehow. Obviously, I view this thing wrongly. I keep acting in the wrong way. I need God's word to change my heart. I need to, to view Christ more, see his perfection in this realm, and become like him. For if, on the other hand, if you are not pure, if instead you are defiled and unbelieving, then nothing will be pure. If your heart is wicked and evil and selfish, it doesn't matter what rules you have. You're going to pervert those. You're going to make those evil. If you are set on selfish, evil things, you're just going to do selfish and evil things. You know, if someone's robbing a bank, but part of their plan is to open the door for an old lady so that they'll seem trustworthy, was that a good deed? No. It was for the sake of evil. So if, if the whole point of your life is to glorify and honor yourself, 
then just because you happen to do a good thing doesn't mean it's good. It's still sinful. Now, there's a great picture of this in, in the novel, The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Uh, the basic premise of that novel is that there's this hedonistic and beautiful young man named Dorian Gray, and he's able to transfer all the consequences from his sin onto this painting, which is stored away in a closet. So he indulges all of his terrible desires and does awful things, but he doesn't bear any of the consequences in his soul or his body. It's born instead on this painting. And so he lives his life and does terrible things. And decades later, he finally comes across this painting, and he sees how disgusting, defiled his soul really is, as represented by that picture. And he hates it. And he comes away, and he says, okay, I got an idea. I've, I've obviously been a debauched individual for the past two decades, but I know. I'll, I'll go do some good stuff, and I'll, I'll clean the picture up. And so he goes and he finds some, you know, moderately nice thing to do. And he, you know, kind of gaunters back to the closet. He's so excited to see how great his picture looks now. Uh, but then, uh, you know, to his sadness, he sees that it's the exact same picture as before. The only difference is now there's a hypocritical smirk of self-righteousness. If you're an evil person, just because you keep some law on top of it, just because you follow some Christian book or you read the Bible infrequently, or you listen to some pastor, you haven't changed who you are inside. You've just given yourself an air of self-righteousness, given yourself a hypocritical look. Uh, the Cretans in Paul's day, they were prone to listen to these Jewish laws about cleanness and prohibitions on, our, on food. How about today? We don't, I don't think we care much about clean and unclean foods, but what are the superficial rules or even good rules that we, though, make our standard of righteousness, that we make our goal, that we look at instead of looking at heart change. Well, for those with a, a more conservative bent, um, these rules might be parent your children in this particular manner. Uh, use this particular curric curriculum or method of schooling for your children, and everything's going to be great. Your, parents gonna be, your parenting's going to be perfect. Wear these clothes, don't listen to this music, don't watch that show, stuff like that. Uh, for those that, are, uh, that have a more liberal bent, uh, they have their legalism just as much. Tell everyone about how much you support oppressed minorities and you're a great person. Recycle, just throw some stuff away and look, you're changing the world. Buy a different car, buy an electric car, look, you're a good person now. Uh, put bumper stickers on your car, that's all you need to do. Those that are, uh, care more about self-help stuff, it could be positive self-talk. Just say this stuff to you. Just do this strategy about saying this word or this mantra, and all of a sudden you're going to be a righteous and godly person. It's that simple. Everyone who's not righteous and godly, all they haven't done is not say these words every day. Do this shortcut and everything's going to be great. And again, it can even be good things that we, though, make the standard of righteousness. You know, read three chapters of the Bible every day. Pray an hour every day. Attend every church event. Read about theology, always have a clean house, and behave children. And I, if I do these things, then I know I'm righteous. And when I have problems in my life, I'm just going to focus on these things that are easier, and that'll take care of my deeper heart problems. It won't. These are shortcuts. They're shortcuts to righteousness, and as shortcuts, they don't work. The only path to righteousness, to truly being sanctified, to becoming pure in your heart, it's the ancient and long one that takes years and years that's relying on God's somewhat boring means of grace of the word of God and prayer in the local church. But if you do that, you rely on those, and day by day, though the outer man wastes away, inwardly you will be renewed. And if you don't do that, 
If instead you dedicate yourself to uh, a veneer of goodness and morality so that you can protect and ignore your persistent vices, if you choose that path, you will be choosing to never honor God. You will be, verse 16, you will profess to know God, you'll make a big show, but you'll deny him by your works. You will, though you like to pretend you're spiritual, you will be detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And that's the opposite of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.17, where he says the person who dedicates themselves to Scripture is complete, equipped for every good work. But if you care about man-made rules as a standard of righteousness, you won't be able to do anything truly good. So in conclusion, first of all, beware of false teachers. And as I said in my past two sermons, examine the character of the people you follow and listen to. Second, consider what may be your cultural blind spots and do not rule out the possibility that at some point in your life your sin and stubbornness may demand that a pastor rebuke your behavior sharply and pray that should that day come, God will give you the grace to repent. Thirdly, consider whether your standard of goodness is superficial or substantive. Do you base your righteousness on your adherence to man-made rules or by likeness to Christ in your inward being, which is then exhibited in the things you do and say? Uh, finally, I want to conclude by exhorting you from Colossians 2, 16-23, which is a wonderful demonstration of, of Paul's point in those last two verses. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's the truth. Let's pray. Lord, please help us. Please guard your people from being seduced by false teachers. Lord, for those who you have raised up in leaders in your church, equip them and encourage them to protect your people from lies. Have all of us take responsibility that we not be seduced and beguiled by liars, by deceivers. Help us be humble enough to realize our propensity to be taken advantage of. And let us therefore all the more rely on you and the means of grace you give us. And Lord, please, have all of us be dedicated to inward, true purity. Let us not be hypocrites who clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly are dead. Renew us inwardly that we would be full of good works for your glory. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, if you'd stand for the, the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.